0: Welcome to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, where every week we bring you an interview from someone who loves these horses, from historians and breeders to insiders and professionals, all brought to you by those who love the Arabian horse. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. and We're thrilled to have John Lambert with us again today. For those that don't know, John is the director of the W.K. Kellogg Arabian Horse Center at Cal Poly Pomona. Welcome, John. Thank you, Paul, for having me today. It's an honor, as always. Well, we're thrilled to have you back, and we're going to talk about a couple topics, in particular judging and also transparency and auctions and how to have transparent sales in the industry. John, let's start with Region 14. You just got back from judging it. It was quite a deep show. It will be the largest regional show of AHA this year. Tell us a little bit about the quality of horses and your experience up there.
0: Yeah, so Paul, it was just such an outstanding show, and I'll just I want to give kudos a little bit to Cindy Clinton, of course, who who puts on Region 14 and has for years, and most everyone in the industry knows Cindy and and what a tight ship she runs. The crew was amazing, the facility was amazing, the number of entries were close to 700. I haven't heard exactly, but I think around 670, give or take. Yeah. Um, a good group of horses, uh, but the qu- quality of the horses was fantastic. We had some of the best Western horses in the country showed up, and English horses as well as hunters and I actually did the pre-show for the ranch classes and the the trail classes so um, man it was just a great horse show quality again I've been fortunate enough Paul like you to judge some of the best horse shows in our country from the Arabian Nationals to Scottsdale to region 12, 13 you know and each year each region has a great regional and this year it happened to be region 14 but on top of that I got to work with two outstanding judges Ryan Standish and Todd Hickerson and the three of us really got the opportunity to see great horses after great horses and we worked very very long days and we happened to be on the same page way more times than we were not quite a few unanimous champions there were often times where the classes were deep and we would have unanimous reserve champions so we were seeing the same things at the same times and it doesn't always come together that way but it made it a a pleasure all the way around.
1: Well of course Cindy runs a phenomenal horse show. They're always buttoned up and you've got a tight schedule and everything works really well. So kudos to her and all the staff at Region 14. And I know from the pictures we'd all seen online how deep the competition was. And it was 675 was the final official number that I had received about the show. But you said Western horses, which I think most people were assuming it was mainly deep in English, but it was really deep across the board, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. I'll be surprised if we didn't judge quite a few Western horses
0: that will be national champion and or reserve national champion this year in October. We saw some top quality horses. Now, I know there were others out there that didn't come, but we did get to see That's some, of the, some of the top ones. Yeah. Well,
1: one thing we talk about in judging a lot is maintaining integrity. And I think when any judge walks out to the ring to take on the task of scoring a class or putting their numbers down on a card, they've really got to check their integrity is intact and put any prior relationships past them at that point. How do you separate that and cause a better future for the Arabian breed by having integrity in your judging? So,
0: Paul, for me, it's really easy. It's not hard
1: for me to do, but I've kind of been
0: that way, you know, my whole life. And I set out when I got my judge's card to do just that. It was to help the Arabian horse itself and not get caught in those traps. You know, I saw that while I worked with Ryan and Todd both. You know, the three of us together, just like you, we know a lot of people. We've done business with a lot of people in the industry, whether it be amateur owners and or other trainers, whether that be training horses for other people that we're judging, uh, buying or selling breedings or buying and selling horses or having horses and training for folks. A lot of times judges have and do have in the past have done business with people and or you just create relationships with folks in our tight knit community. So for me, it's really easy. I'm looking at horses. I'm not looking at people. And I know I can say that very easily, but I think over the years, I've proven that that's what I like to do. And I saw Ryan and Todd do the same thing. And the feedback afterward was extremely positive about the fairness. So as judges, if you don't check that at the gate, when you walk out there to judge, it's
1: going to show up
0: it will show up. So the, right. the, the real you will come to the arena. So for me, it just happens. I don't even try to do it.
1: Well, I think you said, and relationships kind of span the industry in all types of ca- categories, like you mentioned. But if we brought in people from another breed or elsewhere, they really wouldn't know the specifics of judging Arabians. So you've kind of got the dilemma of outsiders who know no one and have zero relationships. And there's financial relationships, but they, they in most cases, they've long passed. You know, that isn't even anything in the- current day but the judge is able to still separate that and walk out there with integrity and judge the class like you said without looking at who the handlers are, who the owners are and choose the best horses in the class. Do you think this is a prevalent problem in the industry or do you think that most judges do maintain integrity? So I'm I'm gonna be brutally honest.
0: I think the trend is positive. I really do. I think that in previous years and or decades, the trend wasn't real positive, but I think it is positive where judges, and I'm talking as a whole, I don't want to segregate you know, within certain communities of our breed, really are, are checking themselves at the gate when they walk out there, and they really are doing a better job at judging what's right there in front of them, not who's handling the horse or right. who's riding the horse. Yes, does it happen? It, it probably does, but I'm seeing it less. I, I don't hear those conversations like we used to. Quite. That That's my take anyways, Paul. What, what well, do you I, feel?
1: How do you feel? I, I, I agree with you. I think there used to be more situations, and now there's fewer where you might see where there might be Lacking integrity in certain situations, but it's really rare, and usually those things get called out pretty quick, and they're handled. So I feel like it's better than it's been, and, and I think judges as a whole are taking this much more seriously, and I'm not only speaking about the judges in the USA and Canada, but even globally. I think everyone is very serious about this job, and it is a profession, right, and they take this job very seriously about their the education they bring to the table when they're walking out in the ring and their lack of having any bias when they get there. So to me, it's also better.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. And Paul, when when you're on a panel of three or if you were judging nationals, a panel of five, I mean, we're all together, all day together. And we do talk. We don't talk about the horses, but we, we do talk and we get to know each other. And I don't hear those conversations that are negative conversations. I'm just not seeing where people are getting stuck wanting to help somebody. I don't see right. it that way. I, I think judges are, like you just said, are taking it very, very seriously.
1: Well, where I do see it, the misperception of it sometimes, and I'm going to use the arena And sometimes it varies a little bit just depending on where the judge is coming from. If they're from another country, the type Mm -hmm. of style they're used to judging, say in Europe versus Brazil or Australia versus USA, is a little bit different. So it might appear that it is a bias towards a certain exhibitor, but it's actually just the style of horse that they like different than we do, a little bit different, um, or the style of showing that is a little different. And I think that sometimes that maybe is misrepresented or misinterpreted, as bias, and it isn't it's more the different dialects we come from within the Arabian breed. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. I, I'd like to say it like
0: this: when we're judging, we're giving our opinion. It's not a timed event, so it's not always as transparent, like right uh, in a horse race. You know, they all start at the same time and they cross the finish line at or barrel racing. You know, it's a timed event. Right, uh, if they're all clean, so it's pretty transparent and and people can follow that really easily. You and I have differences of opinion. I don't what kind of car do you
1: drive, Paul? Well, I happen to have a Buick right now. It's not my favorite, but it's the what I got. Yeah, so what what would your dream sports car be? Well, I would probably have something that had a little more power to it than this particular vehicle. So, all of us judges have differences of opinion and
0: that, and that opinion sometimes comes down to taste. And your taste can be slightly different than mine. And that's the beauty of going to a regional championship or the national championships, where all of those opinions come together in the center ring. And at the end of the day more times than not, and almost always, the right horse ends up on top and is second as well. But we all have a little bit of a difference of opinion. I might like the way one horse moves versus a style of movement that you might like. It's not that either of ours are right or wrong. It's I prefer one thing over another. And when you have three judges, it comes together.
1: Well, the other thing I think that's so important to keep in mind is when you're Going in front of a three-judge panel, you have three sets of two eyeballs out there, three sets of eyeballs. That's Mm -hmm. three individuals who are coming together, and you're going to have your version, and the other one, you know, each of the other two will have their version. But it's Mm -hmm. the combined experience of all three that's putting – the winners on the top, and also in a performance class, you might have seen a horse break, and the other person didn't, so you have to penalize that. It might have been the best horse in the class, but it might get fifth or nothing in your in your card so That's right so the, it's the combination of the three judges out there in a three judge system or a five judge system that is giving the totality of experience that those judges bring to the table at that particular event. And that's really a difference versus showing in front of one judge for one card. Yeah. And that
0: that brings up a really great point. And I I like this dialogue. So for example, we'll use region 14. and, And let's say that Todd and Ryan picked a horse and they both had it first, or I had it six, or I didn't use it at all. And that happened a couple of times amongst all three of us where one of us would not have a horse nearly as high as the other two did. And usually that horse did something pretty big. It made a pretty big mistake. It didn't walk for whatever, whatever reason. The other two didn't see it, and that one judge did. So when exhibitors are going back and looking at the card, there's some transparency right there. It's not, oh, that judge didn't like my horse. It's, oh, that judge probably saw something Exactly. the other two didn't see. It's not that we didn't like your horse. It's that we actually caught something that you didn't want us to see, but one of them happened to see it.
1: Well, I judged the show, and this was many years ago, that a particular Western judge didn't like a certain style of Western rain back then. And if Mm -hmm. you had that style of Western rain on your equipment that judge just didn't like it so those horses would have been placed lower well that was just something i didn't necessarily agree with but it was completely within their realm to have a opinion about that that would be different than the other two judges so that's an example of the cards might look different but it's actually for very valid reasons
0: yeah yeah and if there's a consistency there that individual has a reason and and sure. I think today where we started with, I think I, the judges are really, really checking themselves. I don't think they're even trying to check themselves. I think they just do. And they really want to do a good service while they're out there. They take it very seriously.
1: Well, one last comment, and you can add to this too, and I just want to say to the public is, you know, I judge with a lot of judges over the years. Let me tell you what. 99.9% of them are phenomenal people. They're educated. They're smart. They know what they're doing. They get out there, and they do a great job, and they're meant to be there for a serious reason, and they take this job as a profession, and yes, we're having fun, and it's enjoyable, but it's a lot of work. There are long days, and you're with the same people all day, every day, and you know everybody gets along, and I just have had phenomenal experiences getting to know some wonderful people that are drivers in this breed that really bring a personality and a charisma and an education to the table and i i can't speak highly enough of those folks that i've had the pleasure of judging with
0: yeah i totally concur i've worked
1: with just
0: amazing people
1: my one hand and it
0: don't, won't even fill my one hand have i had negative experiences and that's over i don't know how many years i've been judging it's been a long time couple of decades. i think it's
1: up to two or three hundred now
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a long time
1: it's a uh, long time
0: yeah, and, and and to add a little bit, it is very tiring. It is not an easy position like at Region 14, example. We had class after class that were outstanding. Uh, those outstanding classes are a lot easier to judge, but they require more detailed thought. Uh, sure. When you're looking at great horses, you're looking at fine details, and that's what's really making the difference for you between first and second. It can be something very, very small, and that's tiring on your brain at the end of the day. Plus, you do stand up all day long. You're not walking around very much.
1: Um, well, and keep in mind, you know, you, you as the judge are, are expected to do a great job in the morning in the classes that go first thing at 8 a.m., as well as you do the same yeah. job at 10 p.m., and sometimes these shows run late. So, even if you're tired and you've had an exhausting day, you're still putting the same amount of energy into calling that class and judging that class as you are yeah. in the morning, right? And that's yeah, important. absolutely, because it's important to every
0: exhibitor, and that's our responsibility is to judge them all fairly every single time. Yeah, I had to drink well, a couple cups of coffee at the last show <laughs> to keep me on
1: point. <laughs> well, John, let's switch to the topic about auctions. You at Cal Poly have hosted several auctions now, Cal Poly Pomona, And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the auctions and the success you've had, and and we can get into transparency a little bit, because I think you believe that that has been one of the factors that has been very important for y'all selling these horses like you are at auction. Yeah,
0: it actually ties into the judging. It's about being honest. When I'm out there judging and you're out there judging, it's about being honest, and And this is a conversation I've really wanted to have, and it could maybe elaborate. Cal Poly has a tremendous history. So I don't want to say that our successes in the auction is solely about being transparent, uh, but I think it, it tipped the table into our success. We, meaning... Those prior to me, all the way back to Mr. Kellogg, have been breeding great horses for almost 100 years now. So that that in itself builds a reputation and a brand. But then it came time to start to auction our horses. When I took the job here in 2015 as the trainer, I was sort of told by not only the president's Arabian Advisory Committee, which is made up of industry uh, professionals from our industry, but as well as folks from the university that we no longer would be selling our horses private treaty. And they asked me what I thought of that when I was interviewing. And I was like, well, I don't think that's a great idea. But if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. So I started in 2015. And within three months, we had an auction with 18 horses. I very quickly worked some horses I didn't really know. We made some videos of them. We started to market them, and this was uh, with Bill Addis. And the auction comes, 18 horses, and I knew at the time that at Lambert Arabians, those same 18 horses, I probably could have sold, let's say, 12 of them pretty quickly. There was another six that I think I probably couldn't have sold in private treaty. So I started getting calls on the 18 horses, but I needed to make sure that for this auction to be a success, I had to do what I knew was right. And that was to tell everybody everything about the horses that I knew. And if I didn't know the answer, because I hadn't been there long enough, I would pass the phone call off to whoever it was at the university at the time that knew the horse better. And I made sure that they told them everything, everything, everything. While the auction comes and those 12 horses that I could have sold, private treaty sold. And the other six that I couldn't have sold, sold. And at the end of it, I was like, wow, we can do this. We can sell our horses at auction. Now, remind you, we were to have no private treaty sales whatsoever. Right. So the next year, we went forward and built a list of horses that were ready to be sold. I don't remember exactly how many it was, Paul. We'll just say 15 horses. So again, we contract with Bill. We start to market the horses, videos, training, all of those things take place. And I get more phone calls this second year. And again, I made sure that I told every single caller about the horses. Now, what was interesting is people weren't coming to see the horses very much. They were buying them from vast distances and trusting what I was telling them. Well, we went into the auction. We sold all 15 horses. Two auctions now, we had sold 100%. Year three comes along, same thing, same story. And everyone that I work with here at the university, I make sure that if they're talking to potential buyers when they call, that we tell them everything about the horses. We measure them accurately. If it's 15 hands, it's 15 hands. If it's 14-2, it's 14-2. If it has a blemish, we take a picture of it. If they need to talk to us, we'll do a live video feed. If the horse has a personality trait, we make sure that you, Paul, as the buyer, know what that personality trait is so that when the horse shows up to you after you buy it, you don't call me back up and say, John, how come you didn't tell me that this horse does this, that, or the other thing, whatever that may be? Right. Um And so we we represent them as transparent as we possibly can. So we've had now Paul, five auctions, close to
1: 100 horses, and they've all sold. John, when you're – those are stunning results. So when you're discussing transparency – How do you convey that? Is it just off the top of your head, or are they getting a written form that has information on it, or how is that information conveyed?
0: So, first,
1: we do a video. That's a great question.
0: First, we do a video, and Bill helped me with this, Bill Addis. uh, He was great. I was always talking to him about how to make things better, so he told me one day, John, I know they're three-year-olds, but if it's Western, put on a cowboy hat. So they know it's Western because <laughs> a lot of Arab folks will ride their hunters or English horses in a Western saddle at sure. three. If, if it's saddle seat, wear saddle seat outfit or, mm-hmm. or present it as a saddle seat horse. In addition to that video, we do a close-up walk-around video of the horse both directions, just standing still in a stable halter, no plastic bag, no tail up, just relax. Yep, And then we do a close-up videos of the horse's feet. And then we walk the horse away down the barn aisle and walk it back to the camera. And the angle is important so that you as the buyer sitting in Maine can capture all of that. And then we'll put in a description that tries to represent the horse as fair as possible in two, three sentences. Gotcha.
1: Well, I think that's good. And it, it actually gives a concrete piece of information via video or photography or written that helps them assess what the risk is to them if they're wanting to take on whatever that horse may have. Their ability to assess it is um, greater by you giving them that much information up front. Right. And then there's
0: personality. So here's the other thing that I do, Paul, is Once we do all of that, that will maybe stimulate someone's interest in that horse, and they'll call me Mm -hmm. on a particular horse, and then I'll ask them questions, or if you're, let's say, Paul, that you're calling me about a horse, I'll ask you questions if I don't know you, or if I do know you, I'll ask, if you're a trainer, who are you buying the horse for? Not necessarily the person, but what type of a person are they? Right. So that I can then help match the right horse. I've had more times than not someone call and say, well, I'm interested in this horse. And then I'll say, well, what are you looking for? Or what are the needs of that horse going to be? Oh, well, this type of rider. Well, you know, I'm I'm sorry, Paul, but I love this horse. But I don't know that it's going to fit that personality trait of you as the rider with your experience and or your client's experience. However, this one over here does. Right. And give them another option and then, oh, well, tell me more about that. So generally, my phone calls are 30 to 45 minutes uh, talking to buyers. And, and last year, boy, I had people call back 20, 30 times. And at first, they're like, I'm sorry, I don't want to be annoying. And I'm like, you're not annoying. This isn't. You're not bothering me. I want you to get the right horse or do the best we can to get you the right horse. I can't promise you that. But I want to do the best that
1: I can to help you with the horses that we have offered. Your selection. Yeah, your selection of that horse for that particular rider. That's great. So, John, with the auction results that are presented, you know, how accurate are they? Are, are Are the numbers that are presented factual? And if you don't sell five of them, is that public knowledge also? It is all public knowledge. So our horses are state property.
0: And this kind of makes my job maybe a little bit easier, but it also – proves us to be a model of how others, I think, can maybe change some of the things that they're doing. So yes, been tremendous number of auctions and very, very successful, more successful than us with horses that have sold for a lot of money. Whatever
1: our sale price is, that is the price. Well, I was okay. recently at a major show and a, a fairly major trainer was there with me. And this particular person explained how they put up horses on their social media pages that are some of their you know, lower-cost Arabians, and he said we could sell them all day long. We have got plenty of these $7,500 horses or $5,000 horses that they're not going to make it in the big time, but they're perfect for a kid to get started, and we're very clear about what the horse is and what its value is, and, and we have a large market for them. And I was really a little bit surprised because I didn't realize there was such demand for the, the more what I would call entry-level horses as well. That was good news to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so we saw a lot of those at Cal Poly. Uh, We've sold horses that have gone on to be national champion, and we've sold probably even more that have gone on to be somebody's uh, starter horse, or their trail horse, or their companion horse, or their local level show horse. We've, We've sold more of those. But also, Paul... I I don't think the auction should be just for that. I think the auction should be a place that you can sell a national caliber or even a national champion through an auction um, at a fair market value. Meaning if that horse is worth $250,000, it'll sell for $250,000 if we let that happen. And and that would be a better service to our industry.
1: Well, it does level the playing field in terms of the pricing. If, if it's all, all public and everyone knows what's going on and it's very transparent, that does help establish a very clear market value for horses of all price points. Yeah, and so here's another topic, reserves.
0: So we do here in our auctions, we do set some reserves, usually on – one or two horses. Last year, I had a reserve on one horse. It's not a price that I set solely. I do consult with our advisory committee. I'll ultimately set the reserve, but it's at a price that what I or we think is a fair market value. So every year we've had reserves on horses, and every year people know at least that the horse has a reserve on it, and those reserves get met. We don't put an overinflated reserve.
1: Well, I really like these conversations, and you're right. Both of these topics really come down to transparency and integrity and honesty in the business, and the more of that we can reinforce and encourage, the, the better off the entire industry is. It will succeed more because of that. Yeah, you know, repeat customers, right? You want to be a
0: repeat customer at your local uh businesses that are around you right you You go to the places that you feel comfortable going to if you go to a you know a local restaurant they didn't treat you very well, you're not going to go back right uh, so if you're transparent out there judging maybe maybe everyone doesn't know that you're transparent, but you check yourself and you do, and I do and also when we're selling our horses. You get repeat customers. I get to judge more horse shows when I do a a good, honest job, and I'm nice to people, and I turn my card in, representing what was in front of us. And the same is true when we're selling horses. It gets you repeat business.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely – for any business model, repeat customers is the, the lifeblood of that community. Um, new customers, of course, are critical and important, but keeping the ones you have and keeping them happy is so critical. And
0: the repeats turn into new ones because the repeat ones talk to new
1: people. Sure. All right. Well, John, thank you again for this time today. I'm calling this series number two. And for those of you who haven't heard John's original podcast, it was scored about two, three months ago. It's going to be in our podcast list. If you'll look under Lambert on the Global Podcast Portfolio, you'll see his first podcast. And we talked about his experience and background and a lot about the Kellogg Arabian Horse Center out there at Cal Poly Pomona. It's a wonderful podcast. If you want to listen to another bit of John, um, please take time to do that. John, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best email address to reach you? It is Lambert at EDU. Gotcha. That's perfect, and I know some people might want to reach out to you, and I appreciate your ongoing dedication to We Love Arabian Horses and the programs that you're bringing forward in the educational side of our community are outstanding, and we look forward to featuring some of them more as we progress with our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul.
0: This is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Comments, questions, guest ideas? Feel free to send me an email at austin at com, or just use the contact button on our website at welovearabianhorses.com.